We are now joined by reigning U.S. mid-amateur champion, up-and-coming golf architect, and recent Masters participant, Lucas Michelle. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, and where are you currently? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm 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 well, thanks. I'm actually in a hotel in Sydney, Australia, um, quarantining for 14 days. Uh, I flew into into Sydney. Uh, what is it? Two days ago now. So I'm two days into my 14 day quarantine. Um, I just had a test about five minutes ago. They came in and did the nasal swab um, test. So um, that might have been the jet lag look I had on my eyes because I was watering <laughs> literally just a few minutes ago um but but yeah it was it was fine uh hopefully that comes back negative I'm sure I'll be okay but yeah I've got to stay in here for another 14 or another 12 days so um filling some time with some podcasts with uh with you guys and some others as well so it's too bad we didn't see them come in and test you yeah yeah, you just missed out, actually. It would have been funny. I would have introduced you all to the um, <laughs> the nice lady that had to do it. So I understand that you basically just got out of the States sort of last minute. You you thought you were stuck. Yeah, I uh, I was pretty much sort of thinking that I, I, I wasn't going to be out of there until January, probably, because the flight prices to get home were ridiculous. It was going to cost like <clears throat> 10, 11 grand for a one-way ticket. Um, if I if I booked economy, I could get something for like six grand, but it was like like three different connections, and it was like fifty four hour flight because you had to like stop over in different spots. So it was oh, not good. Shit. But um, yeah, but I managed to find a direct flight at the last minute on Saturday night. I was sitting up in the crow's nest on my laptop and was happened to be looking at flight flight prices again just because I've been checking them all the time. And this flight popped up for Sunday night out of LA and. I saw it and booked it straight away just because I knew that there wasn't probably, I wasn't going to get a better price than that in the next um, couple months. So that still cost me $2,700. Jesus. Um, but from what, compared to what I was looking at, um, it was a relative bargain, but it doesn't sound yes. like a cheap price for a one way ticket. There was so no one on you the go? plane though. So I basically had a whole row to myself. <laughs> so, that's the best. Uh, so do you go Atlanta to LAX, LAX to Sydney? I went Augusta Regional to Charlotte, Charlotte to LA, LA to Melbourne. Uh, sorry, Sydney. So yeah, it was like total of, I think it would have been at least 25, 30 hours of travel. But I was pretty happy when I got on the ground in, in Australia because, yeah, I've been away a long time and um, it's good to it's good to get back. I'm just going to get through this quarantine now. Yeah, so we'll get to, to your time in the States later in the podcast, but let's kind of start from the beginning. So you're the son of a Czech refugee and he emigrated to Australia. And if you read the Golf Digest mm. article about yourself, it's an, it's really an unbelievable story. So can you just tell us how mm. how the son of a an immigrant from the Soviet bloc ended up picking up golf and eventually mm. falling in love with it? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the story's pretty good. I probably won't go into too much detail there, but basically my dad left Czechoslovakia 1968 during the Prague Spring, which was when basically Czechoslovakia was kind of getting a little bit more liberal and democratic, and the Soviet bloc countries didn't really like that. So they invaded Czechoslovakia, and my dad was in the military at the time. He didn't like the look of things and decided that it was a good time to get out. So I jumped a, a, a border um, with some clothes and <laughs> actually ended up losing all his clothes. It bounced, his luggage bounced back, lost his passport, lost everything, but just fled because, I mean, they could have shot him on, on site at, at the border and um, was picked up by some Austrian police, taken to a, eventually to an Australian embassy and, and hopped on a plane to Australia. And, and so basically with nothing, came to Australia um they Australia were really good to him um taught him English didn't speak a word of English before that got him a job and he sort of worked his way up and kind of got a few different jobs along the way and eventually started doing his own um sort of like landscaping business so that's kind of what he did and met my mum um in I think they got married in 1990 and they had me and Obviously, golf wasn't in the family on my mum's side. My mum's an Aussie, but she never, you know, none of her family members ever really played golf. 
but I had a neighbor who was a pretty avid golfer and he had a son who wasn't really interested in the sport, but he had all these cut down clubs. So when I was four years old, he gave me a club and I started whacking around in the backyard. Mum saw me, thought it was looked like the most dangerous thing ever. So she took it away from me because she thought I was going to break something. Um, and then <laughs> later down the track, three years later, I actually ended up um, picking up golf a little bit more seriously. Um, and yeah, I, I found the club again, started hitting it around the backyard again and decided that I really liked the look of this sport. Um, it was, you know, you could play it by yourself. I was an only child. So it was definitely something, something about it attracted me. And, and so my parents saw this and I ended up getting a small set of clubs and went down to the local park with my dad and I uh, started hitting balls around and he figured out that I was actually had a bit of a knack for it. And, um, he sort of got me into some clinics and, and learning the game a bit more. And, and then eventually I started competing as a junior. Um, and then from there, it just kind of, I was always pretty competitive with things and picked up things like sports pretty easily and just had a natural talent for it and started competing in junior events. And from there, I kind of just kept, kept on playing golf. Where'd you play growing up? So I, we were lucky. We, we lived about two minutes from a really nice golf club. Um, very exclusive club, but luckily they had a really good, um, junior program that was really just built around members, daughters and sons. But somehow we managed to weasel our way into that. And, um, I ended up joining the club through, um, their junior program and they had a little nine hole, um, executive course that I started playing at and practicing and eventually, yeah, joined the club and, um, as a junior member from the age of sort of 13 or 14. And it's a really good golf course. It actually probably got a lot of Augusta National about it. It was designed by um, uh, Alistair McKenzie's Australian partner, Alex Russell, and it's hilly and and, and really beautiful. So um, I grew up playing there um, and yeah, it was a great place to learn the game and met a lot of um, great people there. Um, and it was there that I eventually, when I moved to Melbourne after high school, it was that connection with that club that allowed me to join the club I joined in Melbourne um, through like a reciprocal relationship. And yeah, from there I joined Metropolitan in Melbourne, which is also another really good club. So Lucas, anybody that who knows you or follows you on social media knows your golf architecture junkie and your exchange program in the mm. university and allowed you to live pretty much every golfer's dream, you know, spending a semester at St. Andrews University, where I understand you pretty much had basically complete access to St. Andrews. So what was that like and how formative was it to your affinity with golf architecture? Yeah, so I I studied at the University of Melbourne and then they had a great um, this great opportunity to study either a six-month or year abroad program at the University of St. Andrews. So um, during my undergrad, I decided that I'd be stupid not to take up that opportunity um, so yeah, I spent six months at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, I lived literally like a hundred, 150 yards from the 18th grain. Um, I had a, it was a great apartment. It actually looked straight across, um, the old course and West Sands and I could see everything from out, out my window. That's um, so cool. and yeah, I, I played the golf course. Yeah, I played the golf course like 25 times, um, throughout the trip, uh, throughout the, I guess the time I was living there. So. I really did get a good idea of, of golf course architecture and where the game started. But I also traveled around and played obviously a bunch of the Lynx courses around there. And I did have an interest in golf course architecture before that. And that was through a guy called Mike Clayton, who is the architect I work for now in Australia. Um, and he, he is a member of my club in Melbourne. And, and so we were friends before that. So I learned a lot from him, but you don't really know much until you start seeing how it, how it all began and you start seeing those great links courses of the Great Britain and Ireland. And I think that's, if you look at all the great golf course architects, they all go back to Ireland and, and Scotland and, and have a look at those great designs from back then because that's where everyone got their ideas from uh, in the golden age. So Is that yeah. course super easy with no wind? Yeah. Yeah, the conditions definitely um, are what make makes that place difficult i had a i had probably the most memorable round i played there was when it was 
the windiest day I played there. And I was standing on the 11th tee, which is a par three, call it the Eden hole because it's got the Eden estuary behind. And it was straight into the wind. And I hit a, I think, a, I mean, I was sort of mucking around because no, um, I needed a driver. It's 160 <laughs> yards and I needed to hit driver. But the wind was so strong that I decided I want to see what happens if I hit the club I'd normally hit. So I hit an eight iron and I tried to hit it high and I oh, hit this no. eight iron and it literally went up and it went 40 yards backwards. No. It landed like 15 yards behind my head and then rolled like another 20, 25 what? yards backwards. Yeah, it was that windy. It had to be like 80 mile per hour wind. It was a joke. <laughs> and like steady, not even gusty. It was just how like steady he, wind. You could barely the ball walk. That's an injury the risk. <laughs> yeah. The ball, no, they weren't staying. It was just like ridiculous. We're out there and we're like, this is ridiculous, but it's also kind of fun. So, um, yeah, it was, that was, that was a funny experience. That was one of the more memorable rounds at St. Andrews. So what was your access like as a student to St. Andrews and, and all those courses? Like, did you, was there a certain like student plan per se? Yeah. Yeah. So I paid 200 pounds. Yeah. I paid 200 pounds for um, access. So basically, I that's what I paid and I could play the old course, I could play the new course, I could play the Jubilee, the Castle, any of the golf courses, um, whenever I wanted, pretty much. I mean, the old course you needed to go in the ballot, but you'd get a time most of the time. Uh, but yeah, any of the golf courses for 200 pounds at the beginning of the year and no fees after that. So yeah, like I said, it was <laughs> the best deal in the world. Yeah, that's so good. It's so accessible. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a big thing in, in Britain. The golf is very accessible. Um, you know, you've got a handful of clubs that are expensive, but for the most part, the great, a lot of the great links courses like North Berwick and, um, Cruden Bay and, and Brora and Royal Dornock, they're not actually that expensive to be a member of. Just really the, the conditioning standards are probably a little lower in the, in the UK, but also the, those golf courses are really, laid in the ground naturally where they should be and so in order to maintain them it actually doesn't cost a lot of money because they're just the natural grasses that grow there and they just mow them so yeah yeah it's just a different environment to to manage a golf course and now obviously that experience was incredible but was college golf in the states ever on the cards was it something that ever crossed your mind yeah, I, I definitely looked at it. Um, when I turned, or sort of when I was coming to the last couple of years of high school, it was definitely something that crossed my mind. I think I attended a couple sessions in Australia that were run by different recruiting kind of companies. But I never, I never really, I kind of wanted to do it, but I never really knew how to do it. And when you're coming from Australia, it's a long way away and the coaches don't really know what you, what they're getting unless you're a real standout player. Um, so there's definitely been some Aussies that have gone over the States and played at some good schools. Um, but most of the time they're the real standout kids and I wasn't one of those. So, um, I decided that what was best for me was probably to, to move, move to Melbourne. Um, Melbourne's a much bigger city than Perth where I grew up. Um, it's, I'd probably call it the golf capital of Australia um it's got the best golf courses it's got the best coaching it's got the best tournaments um, so it's kind of got the best of everything in australia so i moved to melbourne it also had a really good university so decided that that was going to be a good place to study and yeah i, I moved over at 18 and um, joined the club that i'm now a member of and I, I haven't really looked back my parents um did actually move to melbourne for a bit they those sort of things but at times i do regret not having um done the college experience i think it would have been an awesome thing to do um but yeah it was difficult at the time to really make such a big move and commitment um you know when you're 17 18 it's it's a, and from australia it's a long way to go and i feel like with the aussie guys especially those really elite levels i feel like mm. much of them don't actually go to the states to play the only one that really comes off the top of my head is adam scott yeah yeah there's there's definitely there's, there's a few that live and sort of play in the States, but a lot of the Aussies will stay closer to home, play in Asia, Europe, um, Japan. And yeah, like I said, the ones that do play in the US, I mean, you basically has, have to live in the US to do it. So I think Adam Scott's a little different. I think he's got a place in like the Bahamas or Switzerland and Switzerland or something like that. <laughs> he's, he's a little bit 
higher up than some of the Aussies. I, but um, I remember I went to Albany yeah. in uh, last year, and I was and I was hitting on the range, and up comes next to me is Adam Scott. He's like, "What's up, guy?" And I'm like, "How you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> that place is full of um, full of tour players and all that. So yeah, I think it's I think it's you know. For, for an Aussie, you've got really got to be living over there just because the flights and travel is so difficult. So, yeah, I think Cam Smith and Mark Leishman and um, Matt Jones and a few of those other guys live live in the States. But, um, yeah, it's it's a tough thing to do to pack everything up and move move over there. 2019 was your very mm-hmm. first U.S. Mid-Am. So you're one for one. Um, it was held at Colorado <laughs> Golf Club and Common Ground just outside of Denver you didn't have to go through qualifying based on your wagger position. So how are you feeling about your chances going into the week? Did you ever expect that you could win? And how did you feel about those golf courses? Yeah, it was, it was a funny sort of lead up because I played, I played a bunch of events in America in the summer. Um, I played the sunny Hannah, the Northeast and the North and South. And I played pretty poor at all of them. I, I made the cut at, the northeast um that was probably the best i played in any event so um i didn't really have a great summer a goal and so i came back to australia i was really sort of confused and gonna do i didn't even have it in my mind set that i was going to play the mid-am just because you know i wasn't sure where i was going to get the money to be honest i'd spent a lot of the money to go to the states for the summer and was hoping to sort of do some q schools at the end of that year but i just didn't feel like my game was good enough and so started thinking about things. Um, I actually won a tournament back home when I got back to, to Australia. And that gave me a start in a pro event at the end of the year. And I then spoke to the PJ of Australia. And um, because I'd done the qualifying school for Australia the year before, but didn't get a full card, I decided not to turn pro. But I still had like some limited sort of conditional status in Australia. So what I decided was I was going to play the mid-am as my last amateur event. And then the plan was to turn pro um, the following week. And I had a tournament oh, wow. lined up um, nearby and I was going to play that. And, and and then I had that other tournament that I qualified into. They, they, they actually allowed would have allowed me to turn pro and still play it. Um, so I had like a little bit of a pro schedule lined up. Um, so going into the mid-am, I didn't really have any expectations. I knew I was one of the better ranked players in the field, but a lot of the mid-ams don't play a full schedule. So their waggers don't really reflect how good a player they really are. Um, so my expectations were pretty low, um, but started playing, um, got to Colorado and Common Ground and the courses set up really well for me. They were both pretty wide. They, they were really firm and the greens were quite fast. So it reminded me a lot of golf in Australia, if I'm honest. Yeah, I actually, um, I've played Common Ground. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's, fun it's, course. Yeah, yeah, interesting greens, pretty generous really off the tee. It's it's similar to golf in Australia, so I felt really at home on the golf courses. The only thing that probably was different was the elevation, the balls going a lot further. Right. But yeah, I didn't really play great in the stroke play. Um, scraped through it. I think I was tied thirty six or something out of sixty four, and then, um, but my game started to take shape through the match play rounds and. Um, I, I kept winning and then I knew the semi-final was going to be really hard against Stu Hagerstad. Um, and fortunately I played the best I played all week against him and I think it was two up on 18 and, and then, yeah, got into the final and, and pretty much all week I, I wasn't really thinking about winning because I was so excited about turning pro and getting back to Australia. And that's, that's kind of what I saw the next couple of weeks and, and months to be. And then I got to the final and I realized. I really could actually win this thing. And instead of being excited for that pro golf opportunities, I started to get excited for um, potentially playing the Masters in US Open. But I also had to sort of scale things back a bit and not try and think about it too much because when you start thinking about those sort of things, it can definitely uh, throw you off and get you a little bit too sort of nervous and, and stuff like that for the following, the the final, which was the following day. So I kind of settled my mind and, um, just tried to relax that evening and actually got a good sleep and woke up and somehow got it done. <laughs> was there any moment or specific shot in particular that stuck out to you throughout the week? I mean, the final was really interesting. I was 
three down twice in the final. Um, twice. So I was behind most of the day. Yeah, I think I was I was like one up after three, and then after that I didn't I didn't get the lead until I think it was like thirty second hole or something wow. like that. So I I it was probably on the back nine um, in the final. Uh, I I birdied. 14, which was short par four, and then I birdied 15 to go one up, and then birdied 16 as well to go two up. So <laughs> I had a good little stretch on the back nine, and Joe was playing well. He definitely started to fault, um, but um, yeah, it was probably how I played coming down the stretch. I just was really solid, didn't really make any mistakes, and um, yeah, Joe kind of really just couldn't do anything, which was. Sad for him, but great for me. And um, yeah, I, I got it done on the 17th, which is the 35th hole. Yeah, sort of exploded with emotions and embraced my caddy, Will, who was a good friend. He um, played in the mid-am himself. He, he got knocked out by Stu Hagerstad in the round of 64. So after he got knocked out, he jumped on my bag and we just had a great week. And um, he, he was actually on my bag at the US Open and the Masters as well, just because we thought it wide breaker winning combination. Yeah, exactly. So you just alluded to the 35th hole, and I'm sure you were expecting this mm. question, but what the hell happened? <laughs> what was that quote-unquote <laughs> gimme? Yeah, I, I still don't really know exactly what happened and what, what Joe was thinking, but I mean, the way I saw it, I saw it as him trying to do something to throw me off. I mean, I had three and a half feet for the win. Never a gimme. Like, it's never good for the win, like of a massive event like that. And he walked over, he took his hat off and walked over to me and shook my hand and told me I still had to putt it. So, wait, so it was all very confusing. So, let's get this straight. So, he missed a putt that would have won him the hole, correct? And then you had that three footer to seal the deal. And then he went up to you and shook your hand, which looked like a concession, but he's, you got to putt this essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much exactly what happened. So, so he, his explanation and what I've heard was that he took his hat off and then he thought he heard people starting to clap to think it was done, but he was sort of taking his hat off to step aside, um, was what he said. And, and then because people were clapping, thinking it was a concession, he had to come over to me and tell me that actually it wasn't good. What? So that, that was his explanation, which, which is really weird because like I always knew it wasn't good. Like there was not a, a right. point where I kind of thought, you know, this, this right. There's won. no, there's like, no there way. Right. So he didn't need to come over to me. Yeah. So I don't know why he felt the need to walk over towards me and do what he did. It was really weird. But yeah, um, not to, yeah. The only not... way I could explain it in my mind, based on my experience was that, he did it intentionally to kind of throw me off. I'm sure that's what he was doing. And yeah, go ahead. It Mike. sounds shady. <laughs> yeah. But it, there's a great picture yeah. of you on golf.com to kind of recap the scene and you're shaking hands. And I think you're looking at the official. You're like, who the hell's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm trying to think when, when that photo was, I think that might've potentially been through, through 18, but I, I think I know the photo you're talking about. But yeah, I I remember the handshake, and I'd love to see the USGA put out the tape, but I can't imagine they will because there was a full crew out there taping the event, the event. Um, I'd love to see the tape back again because memory does a funny thing when you're in the moment, and I'd just love to see it. Totally. Well, it's it's good that you that you stepped up there and drained it, so it didn't have to matter anyways. <laughs> yeah, it was not the most confident putt I've ever hit. It was a little <laughs> shaky for sure, but I think anyone would have been in that feeling that in that them? position. The most bizarre thing is I've actually seen a clip of that putt. I, I think I got really bored and just scrolled all the way through the USGS Twitter. This thing, you were playing that outside the hole. Yeah, no, it was a tricky putt. It wasn't It wasn't like a nice putt to have for the win. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, it lipped in like right edge. It lipped in right edge. So it wasn't, yeah, like middle of the cup or anything either. But, um, I mean, it went in. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. <laughs> So obviously, with the uh, with the win at Colorado Golf Club came the exemptions uh, to the Masters and the U.S. Open, and obviously we'll get to Augusta as it's fresh on our minds. But 
talk a little bit about winged foot, how that experience was like, especially with it being your first major and with 2020 being complete mayhem. Mm. Yeah, it was a, it was obviously a funny year. Um, yeah, winged foot was, was, you know, it was a good experience. I would have liked to have played a lot better, but overall the week was, I mean, when you're playing your first major, you're not really too worried about how you scored, especially as an amateur, you're not, you're not making any money or anything like that. Yeah, I just went out there and just really tried to enjoy the week. Unfortunately, I drove the ball like horribly. So um, when you're driving the ball fully on a golf course, like wing foot where the roughs, you know, four or five inches long and thick, like it's just, it, you, you're making hard work for yourself. And, and yeah, I struggled um, with my game, which was frustrating, but, you know, I had a great week with Will on my bag and I played some cool practice rounds with Adam Scott and Sung Jm and um, Rio Shikawa and, and some cool guys. So overall, the experience was super memorable. Um, had a great time. It was on a great golf course like Wingfoot Golf Club. So I really can't complain about the, the whole the whole week. And I mean, I capped off the week. I actually went to Philly with my buddy Will, who caddied for me. He 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 lived for two and a half years in Philly doing grad school. And we just, we capped the week off with a trip through Philly playing some great golf courses. So we played Philly cricket, Aronimink, Pine Valley, Marion, uh, <laughs> plus a couple shit. others. So yeah, we, we hit all the spots afterwards. So, um, so we definitely uh, made the most of our time up there. I played Philly cricket about three months ago. And I think it's my favorite golf mm-hmm. course I've ever played. Um, really? Yeah. Unbelievable. Cricket's awesome. I loved but it. What was Pine Valley like? Yeah, Pine Valley, I, it was actually the second time I'd played Pine Valley. I went there in 2018 <laughs> and played it. I a, I, it was funny. The 2018 trip was really funny because I was playing, I had weaned foot arranged to play, and I was chatting to my buddy, and he was like, oh, I'm in like New York as well. And um, he's like, you know, I've got a spot at, at Pine Valley if you want to play. <laughs> and I had, Oh, my I gosh. Had, well, yeah. And I had Wingfoot arranged though for the exact same day, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm I have to turn down the invite." And then he was like, "Well, you know, it's there. Maybe just see if you can like reschedule the Wingfoot round." And so I I emailed the guys I knew at Wingfoot, and they happily rescheduled. And so I then was able to play Wingfoot and Pine Valley back to back in in a two day period. So turning down Wingfoot, but yeah, for Pine Valley is a baller move. yeah it, it would have been pretty pretty harsh i actually told the guys i didn't tell the guys why i was wanting to move the round at wingfoot um <laughs> and then i then actually so i moved it and then i played with them and i said look i actually had to move it because i got an invite to play um uh, pine valley and they were like oh yeah that's that's fine that's pine valley they, they understood but i didn't want to like throw them around like that but then as soon as i told them it was pine valley they were like fine with it um, so yeah, <laughs> Pine Valley is awesome. It's it's probably the most visually stimulating golf course you'll ever see. Like there's so much going on, like the bunkering, the pine trees. I mean, the textures with the you know golden roughs, and it's just yeah. it's so so beautiful. And it's in just like a, the coolest place, like the land movement and the sand. I mean, it's just so awesome. Um, it's but it's really hard. Like you've got to be a good player to play Pine Valley. It's you know, the fairways are pretty wide, but if you miss them, it's very penal. Like you're going to chip out or just bump it out and try and make your four or par, you know, from the fairway and just get up and down. But, you know, it's, it's still, it has to be probably the best golf course I've ever played though. I think just the routing's awesome, the green complexes and, and just everything about the places. So I was going to ask you, what do you think you shot there? So the first time I played there, I actually played pretty well. I was one under with one to play and I doubled the last for one over, which just killed me. Oh, no. um, the second time I played there, which was after Wingfoot, I think I was so demoralized by how I played at Wingfoot. I was copying it. I was hitting it so bad. I think I had like 78 or 80 almost. Like it's a tough golf course yeah. if you're not. If you're not on your game, it'll eat you up. Yeah, no, everybody that I know who's played Pine Valley says it's it's beautiful, it's incredible, it's the most, as you said, visually stimulating golf course, but you mm. are going to get your ass kicked. No, that's exactly what it's like. It's, you know, you're having fun, but also just getting yeah beaten up as well at the same time. Yeah, of course. Um, what do you think of the Wingfoot setup? Uh, 
it was interesting. Like, I mean, it was a pretty typical US Open style setup, long raft, fairly narrow fairways. Um, greens were, you know, pretty firm and fast. So, um, yeah, I thought the setup was good. Um, in a way, it's funny, like people talk about, you know, golf course architecture and, and how that, you know, when the fairways are wide, you, you can play to sides of the fairways to open up angles to greens and stuff and how that makes golf more interesting when you've got multiple kind of ways to play a hole. And it was funny because the wing foot setup, because the rough was so heavy and the fairways were so narrow, instead of sort of for sides of fairways, you were kind of just aiming for sides of holes. So like, for instance, down this hole, that if you put right rough, you had an angle to the green, but if you put in a left rough, you had no way to get to the green because there was a bunker kind of crossing in front of the green and you'd have to, yeah, there's just no way to get to the green. So you'd aim it down the right side of the hole to open up the green to be able to, you know, potentially hack it out of the right rough. And then on the second, it was the opposite. You'd aim down the left because the green opens up to the left. So in a way, because of the setup and the long rough and the firmness of the greens, it actually played super strategic off the tee, which is kind of not what you'd think for a US Open setup where the fairways are 22 yards wide and the rough's really long. So, yeah, I mean, I thought in a way it played pretty strategic off the tee. Um, and, yeah, I really liked the way it was set up. I think they did a good job. It's interesting that you say that because I think for the viewer where NBC mm. really tells you nothing about the golfers, and that's a primary complaint that we have, mm. you know, it almost seemed like the fairways, are, mm. the fairways were so narrow that everybody was missing it and it just rewarded the guys who had speed a la Bryson and Matt Wolf. I think there was probably definitely a bit of that. Um, you definitely have to be strong to get out of that rough as well. Um, and yeah, obviously it's a massive advantage when you can hit a wedge out of that, those sort of lies compared to like a seven iron. So yeah, that, that would, that's a fair critique and I would hundred percent agree with that. Um, you know, it, it is funny when you, you hear guys saying like, Oh, well, you know, that, bomb and gouge Bryson style golf that will work at the US Open and then in fact it was the perfect setup for Bryson yeah. to just dominate so let's move on to the Masters last week I gotta ask you what is the surrounding area like I mean I've heard it's kind of a shithole <laughs> around the golf course is that true? yeah <laughs> it's I'd say like directly around the golf course is like okay like not horrible but there's certainly some areas where you drive through I mean, I remember driving from Augusta to get to the airport and I drove through some areas and I was like, I don't, I don't feel safe actually stopping this car. Like, <laughs> like it was like, if this car stops, I feel like I'm going to get jumped and like they'll hijack it. Cause it was a nice car as well. It was like a really nice courtesy car, like a Mercedes Benz, like GLS 450. So it's like a hundred thousand dollar car that I'm riding around with. And I'm like, I'm actually going to get like, little shot um so yeah it was i mean it's definitely it's an interesting place we we stayed in aiken south carolina which is like just across the river in south carolina and aiken's got some really nice spots we weren't staying like a particularly nice area but um it was just like a slightly nicer spot and that was great um we went to you know some restaurants in aiken for dinner a couple of nights and yeah it was it was beautiful but um yeah i'd, I'd say augusta it's not it isn't the nicest area uh, of america um, I, unfortunately although it does have one of the coolest golf courses i had a s experience so similar to that i don't know if you've played san francisco golf club but you'd make these like really crazy turns and then there's like as you get to the entrance there's like this rundown church and my father and i'm reading directions off to him it's the first time he's playing he's like you're sure we're in the right spot he's like this looks pretty fucked up. Yeah, because you like duck um, under the highway and then you like cut in and then it's like, yeah, you don't know where you're going there. But <laughs> and then you make that I mean, once you get in, it's like a little oasis. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I remember it now as well. What is it like just rolling up to Augusta for the first time? I assume it was your first time, you know, when you were prepping for the Masters. Unless you have, unless you have some story about turning down Pine Valley for Augusta. I don't know if you've played it before, but uh, what is it like? What is it like? Just no, no. As an amateur going there, you get five unaccompanied play to play the golf course. So I went there in December last year um, and I used up, I think it was three of the days. Um, so I got there, I had to arrange 
I had to tell them exactly what time I was arriving at the gate. Um, and they had my name on the, on, on the list. And so I wasn't allowed to stay on site or use the crow's nest either in that trip. I wouldn't have looked at it, but um, because I wasn't with a member, you couldn't stay on site. So um, stayed in downtown Augusta, which is actually not horrendous. Um, I was in like a little Airbnb. Uh, and then, yeah, drove in in a little Ford, like a Ford Fiesta or like some tiny little rental car. It was so, so funny driving down Magnolia Lane in this like tiny little rental car. Um, drive in. So I tell them who I am and they lower there's like these, I think they call them bollards or whatever they are, like these automatic, like low, lowers down into the ground and then you just drive straight across and driving down Magnolia Lane, it was pretty surreal. And then you get to the end of it and that's when the clubhouse kind of opens up, hedged in the shape of America with the pin through it and which is the logo and then clubhouse, you turn right at the, it's like a turning circle, you turn right. And then you just park your car right there. Like there's a little parking lot there. And um, the head pro came out and um, met me and uh, showed me around the clubhouse. I had breakfast in the club. Um, and then there were some members at the course. They went off pretty early. So I took, I think I teed off just after them. Um, it was me and the assistant pro, who was actually quite a good player and bombed it as well. So like it was good to see how he played the golf course because he kind of hit it sort of similar to how I hit it. Um, and we chatted a lot. It was a really good guy. And so I just played my first 18 holes with him. Just wanted to sort of experience it for what the golf course is and not really think too much about strategy and score and anything like that. I was just enjoying playing Augusta as Augusta National and, yeah, not thinking about scorecard and, and, and all that. But um, I actually birdied the first hole. <laughs> that was the one thing I remember. <laughs> nice. um, uh, and then, yeah played it another four times in that trip um, when I was there. And then when I went back in March, that was in December, when I went back in March, I played it another three or four times as well. So I, I had a fair few looks at the course before I got there in November. Is there anything about Augusta that us normal people just don't realize about the club? Any any stuff that you notice that's... They're really interesting. Like, there's like... They're super nice, especially to the amateurs, I think, as well. But they're, they're super nice. But there's always, like, just a hint of, like, just making sure you're doing the right thing. So, like, they're, like, super accommodating of everything. But you always feel like you're just a little bit on, on edge, walking on eggshells yeah. around there. Uh, I don't know what it is. They've, all the people that work there just have the same presence and attitude. It's really funny. Um, my caddy sort of really picked it up when he was there because as a caddy, um, you obviously, you're almost like the lowest class citizen in a way at a place like Augusta National. Um, I, I think it's just, you know, the historical kind of, they like their traditions and, and the caddies are always, you know, they're not the players. The players get treated like royalty and, and the coaches and the caddies and everyone else is just like second class. Um, and my caddy was hating, hating that. Um, <laughs> he's obviously a really good player as well. But yeah. felt like he was getting treated like crap. But um, so he was having issues with the the guy who was giving him his suit for the um, for suiting up for the tournament, mm-hmm. the white jumpsuits. So he he went there the first day and tried to get you know a specific size because he's like, okay, I'm like a 44 long, whatever it was, tall guy, and wanted this certain size. So they tried him in a few different ones and he really liked this size. Then he went back the next day and they'd like changed him into another size because they, they thought they knew better, which was really irritating to him. And so he had this argument with like the guy managing the suits, like, no, I want this size. And, and the guy's like, like I said, like super polite. He's like, well, I just want the best for you. I just want you to be in the right suit. You know, it's going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. And it was like, just give me the 44 or whatever the length was. And eventually he got the right suit. And then later on, it was funny because later on in the week, we realized that there's two different types of suits. So there's a lightweight suit and there's a heavy suit. And it was a really warm week. And all the like the new kind of not the veteran caddies get the get whatever suit is kind of available. But the veteran ones can can ask for specific ones based on the weather. And Will found out about this. So he started going in to ask for like, specific weighted suits like i want the light one today i want the heavy one today 
and the the guy running the the show in the the suits again was just like being super polite but basically putting will in his place <laughs> at the same time and will was just hating it and it was That's funny because so all week it was hot and then on the final on the saturday morning it was really cool so will wanted to change in from the hot suit into the or the the, the lightweight suit into the one the heavier suit for the colder weather and so he went to change it and the guy just was like just couldn't have been happier because all week he'd been, you know, fighting with Will to try and get him into the lightweight suit. And then this morning he had the lightweight suit ready for Will. He was like, Will, I've got you that lightweight suit. It's going to be great. <laughs> and, and instead, Will obviously wanted the heavyweight suit. And of course, that guy knew it, but he just sat there so satisfied that Will would be struggling in the cold and the lightweight suit. So that was that was probably the battle um, had the most in, in, the, in the, at the club. And that, that was probably one of the funniest experiences of the week there. Now awesome. I I also I saw a video on Instagram of a by the chipping area a caddy putting a bucket down and it disappeared into the ground and balls came up. I saw that as well. I I saw the video. I never saw it in person. I didn't know where that was or what was going on there. So it actually wouldn't have been a caddy. It would have been one of the volunteers in the white okay. jumpsuit. We were, I think our caddies. So they knew what was going on. I didn't see that happen at all but that was bizarre yeah. I, I like you i was like will sent it to me and we're like we need to find where this is like, right. <laughs> that was crazy <laughs> there's like so, there's, there's stuff like that all over the place there's tunnels under underground like when they take you from the they take you from the locker room to the range you go like under this tunnel and you're like where like where is this going like you kind of like come and then you pop out somewhere else and you're like what is going on it here? Does, like, this, it, place, this place is insane. I mean, that. even the sprinkler heads, the sprinkler heads this or well, last week, there was no sprinkler heads because they'd covered the sprinkler head with like real grass. So it was like what? basically like a, it was like a cup. I guess it was a cup that sat over the sprinkler head with real grass on it. And the cup just pops up and the sprinkler head can spray out and then it pops back down and they can just mow straight over it again. So there was physically no head. It was just like, and there was no edge or anything. It's just like an invisible sprinkler head that pops out of the ground. Yeah. So, so, so they probably had like a sod farm somewhere out on the property. They just cut a circle out and just stuck it right on top. I guess so. Yeah. It's just, it's a, the latest and greatest, whatever the new sprinkler heads are. I think they call them stealth head or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. Wait, that's unbelievable. Wait, so how did the course play in November compared to your trips in, you know, December and March? Was it completely different? Yeah. I actually, it was pretty good to play it in December because it probably played as close to November as any point would. So, you know, in, in December and in November, the, the ryegrass hadn't fully come through in the fairways. So there was some like, sort of softer areas around the greens particularly. So understanding how those chip shots react um, in that time of year was important. And then um, in March, there was a lot more growth of the ryegrass in the fairways. So the fairways actually was sort of a little firmer and ran out a little bit more in March. So it was definitely playing softer and longer in November than in March. Um, but that was pretty close to how I played the course in December. So yeah, I got a good mix of practice rounds to see the course at different at different times, and yeah, I definitely felt like it was pretty close to how I played when I was there in December. Uh, so, uh, what was your preparation like for for November Masters compared to what it normally would have been like in for April? Yeah, I had a pretty good prep lined up for April, so it was kind of frustrating to have to kind of delay everything, but. In, 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 for April, I was, I was, I got to the States actually. I got there in March and I was ready to go. And then obviously COVID happened, but I was going to play the Azalea. I just played an event in March in Australia and then I was going to play the Azalea Amateur, um, in Charleston and then head across and, um, play the Masters. Um, and that was going to be in April. But then with the, obviously the, moving of the dates i actually still got to play the azalea which was good they scheduled in the same sort of time frame but because of the timing i wasn't really coming off a bunch of events like i would have been in the summer in australia so obviously in australia our summer's january february march where that's when we have the most events so 
I had a pretty good schedule of events in the lead up. I felt like I was playing pretty well. Um, and obviously probably would have been a little bit more tournament prepped for April than, than I eventually was for November because basically I didn't play anything from, um, early March tournament wise until I got to USAM at Bandon. So, um, there was like a, what's that six month period where basically I didn't play any tournament golf. And then really after that, I only played USAM, US Open, Azalea and Masters. So it was, it was a funky kind of prep schedule. Um, I couldn't really get my game in a great position in terms of tournament prep, but, um, I felt like I was able to practice and play enough. It just would have been nice to really test it under tournament conditions a bit more in the lead up. And what is your assessment of how you played last week and how are your nerves? Yeah. I mean, the, the most nervous I was all week was probably waiting for my COVID test to come back negative. <laughs> that's your right. <laughs> that was, like, it, that's fair. Yeah, if that didn't come back negative, then I wasn't playing. But um, I I was okay. I, I got to the first tee and it was it was weird. We had a 10-minute delay because it was really dark that first round. It was like storms coming in and stuff. Um, so it was pushed back 10 minutes. So that was 10 more minutes to think about that first tee shot. But, um, but you know, I, I got to the tee. I calmed my nerves pretty well. I, I could definitely feel my heart rate was elevated. Yeah. I mean, it had, it had to be beating in like 130, 140 beats per, per minute. It was like pretty quick. Um, but in terms of like other nerves, like my hands were really steady. I, I felt, I felt good. It was just my heart rate was just going nuts. Um, but, um, you know, I, I didn't obviously play my best for the week. I drove it really poorly and that's the area that I've been struggling with. It's funny because, you know, driving for me in the last two years is actually, it went from a bit of a weakness to somewhat of a strength in my game. And then in the last six to 12 months, I've sort of driven it quite poorly again. So I've got to figure out something there, um, find something that works. But um, yeah, I drove it poorly that first round particularly. Didn't hit my irons great. Putted and chipped really nicely, which I'd say is probably the strength of my game overall. Um and then the second round, I actually drove it quite nicely. Didn't hit my irons good again um, and just kind of grazed the hole a lot. Putted well, but didn't really hole much. So, yeah, it was sort of, it was a disappointing performance. You know, I I did get the opportunity to play with um, some cool guys in practice rounds. I, I played with Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley and Max Homer and Colin Morikawa. So I played with some pretty young superstars and I sort of saw where their game was and where mine was and I didn't feel like there was that much different it was just they were they were just a little bit steadier they hit the ball just a little bit more consistently straight and that was that was the main difference so if I can just dial in my ball striking a bit more under pressure I feel like I've I feel like I've got what it takes to compete with those guys it's just yeah it's getting that little bit better um, in those areas so, Lucas, moving on from your experience at the Masters, we touched on it a little earlier. You know, you're, you now have a career in golf course architecture. You're, you're a design associate mm. with Mike Clayton and you've been in the States for much of this year. You're doing work at uh, Bloomfield Hills outside of Detroit with uh, Mike DeVries. Um, how did those two opportunities come about and discuss the work that you're doing outside of Detroit? Yeah. So, I've known Mike since I moved to Melbourne. Um, Mike's a really good guy. He played for 20 years on the European tour. So he's been a little bit of a mentor for me in terms of my golf, but also um, just a really good guy, um, really passionate about golf course architecture. He is a golf course architect. And so when I moved to Melbourne and started playing golf with him, it was kind of all we chatted about. And then through the years, I obviously traveled internationally and got the opportunity to play a bunch of really good golf courses um, got to understand a lot more about golf course architecture. It, and it got to the point where Mike sort of, there was an opportunity to work with him in his business and I wasn't really doing anything um, engineering related, but felt like there was some parallels between what I'd studied and golf course architecture. So um, yeah, the opportunity sort of presented itself and I got involved with Mike uh, late last year. And so when I, when the whole COVID thing happened, um, obviously I, I, my, all my plans were thrown around. Um, Mike in the last 
12 months has been involved with Mike DeVries and a guy called Frank Pont in a partnership called CDP Golf. And so Mike DeVries in Michigan was working on this project, like you said, at Bloomfield Hills. Um, and there was an opportunity for me to work on the project more as like an intern slash kind of work experience opportunity because I didn't really have much um, construction experience and it was just a really good opportunity for me to learn um, how a golf course is, is designed and constructed. So I spent a lot of time in the first few weeks on site, sort of in bunkers, um, you know, digging some drainage trenches and understanding how the whole construction process works, which was really, really interesting. And at the same time, sort of splitting my time up between doing that and also practicing for the US Open and the Masters. So it was a good way to, to kill some time. Um, I ended up staying with Mike DeVries. Um, his family had a house near the golf course. And so I had a place to stay, food to eat and a golf course to practice at while I could also um, learn some hands-on golf course construction stuff. So it was a really useful use of my time for those sort of weeks between tournaments and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now that you're back in Australia, do you have any other projects lined up? There's hopefully going to be quite a good opportunity in Tasmania, which is that little country, um, oh, sorry, little um, island south of the main mainland of Australia. Um, there's already a bunch of good golf courses there, actually. There's um, Bamboo Dunes, which is kind of a big kind of resort with two top 100 world golf courses on it. Um, and then you've got King Island, which is attached to Tasmania. That's a, a Kate Wickham golf course. That's actually a Mike DeVries design as well, which is again in the top world top 100. But, um, former PGA tour player and Matt Goggin, who's an Aussie from, um, from Tasmania, he's always wanted to build a golf course down there on a piece of property near the Hobart airport. And, um, Finally, he's been able to get some investors together to get a project started there. And it's an incredible, it is really an incredible piece of land, um, sand dunes, um, pine trees, and it's on, on the ocean, but not as exposed as some sites. So it'll be windy, but it won't be sort of painfully windy. Plus it's, you know, 20 minutes from, from Hobart, which is a fairly sizable city with a big airport. So. Commercially, it's a really good opportunity to build two or three great golf courses that I think the plan is to build them publicly accessible. So kind of like abandoned dunes resort style. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I mean, the yeah, the land is incredible. So um, it looks like Mike DeVries and Mike Clayton are going to have the opportunity to design the first golf course there. And then I'd say they'll probably look at other architects to do the second or third course. But um, from what I've seen of the land, it's really really first class land for great golf and i think with a guy like mike devries who's had you know built some some really great golf courses like kingsley club and kate wickham um which are you know both world class i think with that piece of property i'd be very surprised if it wasn't in the top 50 golf courses in the world when it gets finished and completed so being part of that could be a really awesome opportunity for me to learn a lot about golf course design and construction and also get it involved and, and, and yeah, in a project that would be really fun. So Lucas, before we let you go, we got a few rapid fire questions for you. Mm-hmm. Go for it. All right. In your mind, what is the sexiest shot in golf? Uh, stinger. Love I think it. a stinger is a, a mm-hmm. sexy shot. <laughs> All right. What are your top three favorite golf courses? I know that's like picking between children. Yeah. So Royal Melbourne, West Course. Pine Valley, and St. Andrews. Favorite Australian food or traditional dish? That is a tough one. I'd say probably it'd be a breakfast item like um, poached eggs and avocado on toast, which is quite Australian. I know you guys probably eat that over there as well, but that I think originated in Australia. Mm. Now, what is what is the weirdest item that you keep in your bag or your strangest superstition that you have on the golf course? Probably the weirdest item I've got in my bag would be I've got like this like little ruler that I putt on, but it's kind of, it's like a, I bought it from like, for like $2 from Home Depot basically. And I cut it to size so it fits in the bag better. And it's what I use to like calibrate my putting every time I practice. So like if I'm doing putting practice, I'll put this ruler down. I've pointed it like a six foot straight putt. And then I square up the edge of my putter to the, 
to the face and and then I'm able to just putt balls down the line. But I mean, if you saw it, it just literally just looks like a bit of scrap metal. But it's pretty much <laughs> exclusively the the one training aid that I use. I don't really have string line. I don't have any, any chalk in there. I've literally just got this weird little piece of metal that I use to practice my putting. What is what's your low round? Sixty three at my home club, Metropolitan. Um, it was actually it was I had a sixty four before that, and it was on cord greens. So. I felt like um, I deserved lower, but yeah, 63 was pretty good. I think I had them like a couple months apart. That was a few years ago now. I haven't gone low in a while. I need to figure something out. Do you have any plans of going pro? I think I just don't want to regret not going pro or not trying it. So maybe next year, if if tour schools come around, I mean, I mean that's the toughest thing at the moment. No one knows when Q schools, what happened in there. But next year, end of next year, I feel, feel like my game's in good shape. I think I'll probably have a crack at some few schools. And if that doesn't work out, then, yeah, I'll, I'll feel like I've you know, done my job and tried my best. But um, it would be – I still have ambitions of, of competing in pro golf because I felt like, like I said at the majors, it didn't feel like my game was actually that far off these guys. What do you think is the toughest hole at Augusta? Toughest hole – probably this week 18 played really tough uh, it's obviously a tough tee shot and then with the softness the ball was just going nowhere on that fairway so you're hitting like six sign into that green um but just that tee shot so so difficult five's tough four's tough you know ten's pretty tough as well but i felt like 18 was the most difficult uh what was the best shot you hit last week the chip in on 12 was probably the one that i'll remember the most it was like a super bare lie yeah, I um, saw that shot. It was like it was like really muddy and like it was it was a bad spot and I mean the ball the tee shot almost like stayed up there in like the woods. It was lucky to finish where it did, but then to make birdie off that off that line that chip it was pretty damn cool. Favorite Aussie golfer, Adam Scott. Um, he's a cool guy actually. I was I was standing in the in the pro shop. I I met him at Wingfoot and um, we we played a practice round at Wingfoot, which was awesome. And then I was in the shop at the same time as he was. We we're both wearing masks, and he he thought I was one of the guys working in the shop. Oh no! <laughs> so he started asking me. He started asking me about like shipping or something like that, shipping items back to wherever he lived. And then he like legitimately like didn't realize. And then I all I did, I was wearing my credential, and I just held my credential in my hand and just like showed him it like put it in front of his face <laughs> and he like he, he was like oh my god i'm so sorry like lucas like, i didn't recognize you in the mask whatever and then so we had a laugh about it and that was good that's but, uh, yeah adam's adam's a cool guy um but that was that was a funny experience i had so let's say you hit a bad shot on the golf course what's what's your go-to swear uh yeah the f word definitely i mean just the true australians use Australians use the C word uh, a lot more than, <laughs> than most, but I don't. I don't use that as much um, as some of my friends. I've got a friend actually, young guy in Australia. He's just a bit of an idiot, and he'll use that word like all the time. But like, I was traveling through America with him, and he just uses it like all the time, like in any conversation. So we're just <laughs> walking through a shopping mall, and he starts saying F and C, F and C. And I'm like, you just can't say that here. Like, it's so much worse to say it in America than it is in Australia. But yeah, in Australia, it's, it's like so common. true. Yeah. So I was like, I just couldn't be near him because I felt like I was going to get like, I don't know, killed by someone <laughs> for using it, for him using it. So our last question is: Lucas Michelle will be doing what in five years? I'm going to answer that for you and say you're going to be playing in more Masters. Yeah, I like that. And if I'm not, hopefully, building a lot of great golf courses. Well, Lucas, we can't thank you enough for coming on and giving us your time. We really appreciate it, and we loved all your stories. We wish you the best of luck going forward, and you know we'd love to do this again at some point. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, it's been fun, and hopefully we can do it another time, maybe post another Masters or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. All right, take care. No worries. Thanks, guys. I hit a chili dip. It was off the it was off the hosel. I mean Cameron uh, Davis is a joke. Mike, you got any yeah. takes on the e golf pro tour? You already have iron <laughs> covers. You already look like a giant <laughs> pussy. <laughs>
I don't care. I honestly don't give a shit. Him? He could be six feet under at this point, whoever WD. I didn't watch a single <clears throat> bit of it, but I'm going to chirp at the Fairmont St. Andrews because of the name. Yeah, Paul Tesori. Paul Tesori, friend of the pod. Neiman, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Yeah. Friend so, of the pod, Aunt Betsy. Terrell Haddon, are you kidding me? And there's a raccoon, no joke, like 20 feet away. Florida. Say Florida, I'm hanging out. Florida. No! You can't yeah. say Florida! <laughs>